Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Steve, good to be with you again for another episode of the Growth EQ Podcast. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. I can't wait for this conversation. Before we get into that, though, uh, just a note that we have started a Patreon account that will support what we do on this podcast, what will support what we do on the Growth Equation newsletter. The reason we went this route is because we kept getting sponsorship pitches from companies, quite frankly, that we didn't align with. We don't want you to sell you some hyped up supplement or some crazy diet that probably doesn't work. We stand for things that, you know, have research and science behind them that actually impact things. So we decided, how do we keep this going? How do we keep these free for you guys? Well, Patreon is our solution. So if you sign up, you'll get all sorts of good goodies from a book club to potentially being part of a mastermind group to sign copies of our forthcoming books. So if you haven't, check it out. It is patreon.com slash the growth equation. And today on the show, we are really fortunate to have an old friend, Mara Gay. Mara is, um, well, I'll start with old friend. Her and I were in the same creative writing class way back in the day in undergraduate school at the University of Michigan. And since then, Mara has really had a pretty prolific and ascendant career. Started with working for the school newspaper, then local newspapers, then state newspapers, then the Wall Street Journal, then doing local reporting for the New York Times. And now she sits on the editorial board of the New York Times. So we definitely get into the weeds on journalism. But what I think was really interesting is more of the higher level principles that Mara is able to exude for staying humble and performing at your best when you are really at an elite level of performance in your respective field. I had the idea to do this when I was looking back over some notes from past conversations with Mara. And when she was named to the editorial board, she said, Brad, this is like going from high school to the NFL. And this conversation is really about how do you go from high school to the NFL and keep performing well and keep your humility while at the same time enjoying the ride. So uh, I think you guys are going to love it. You can tell Mara is just such a wonderful person who is so sharp and also kind. And with that, let's get into the conversation. Mara. Good to uh, good to see you. How are you doing right now? Oh, it's great to see you, Brad. Um, I'm doing well this morning, and um, I'm excited to talk with you. Glad we're yeah, doing we're this. really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, we thought that it would probably be best for you just to give as consolidated of a timeline as you can uh, about how you got to where you are today on the New York Times editorial board. And I thought it might be fun to start it back at undergraduate school in the University of Michigan when you and I were in the same creative writing seminar, editing each other's papers, and that's where we first met. Aren't you happy that none of those papers are available online? I actually, you know, it's pretty funny. I, I distinctly remember that you wrote something that at the time I found pretty profound, and I'm sure I still would, about your father. 
And then I recently saw on Twitter, you were tweeting about your father. So like, yes and no, those things live on. Um, I'm glad it's just in, in your, in my memory for the moment, <laughs> but, but no, um, it's true. Um, this is a real treat because, uh, I get to see an old friend, um, even though it's over, um, zoom, so to speak. Um, and yeah, but, but the story of how I became a journalist actually really started in high school. I was the editor in chief of my high school newspaper, um, and, you know, pretty nerdy. And then in college, I joined the Michigan Daily, University of Michigan, and I was an editorial board writer. That's how I started. And uh, then I had a column in college for a couple of years, and then I later became a news reporter. And I actually thought I would go to law school because I loved politics. I always loved politics, but um, you know, I got a job writing in journalism, and so I never looked back. I've worked for a whole different number of publications over the years. Um, Brad and I graduated in 2008. So the entire global economy collapsed and I've been through my share of layoffs. But um, that's also just been a huge adventure. And I worked for the Wall Street Journal for six years on the news side, covering Mayor de Blasio um, and in here in New York. And then uh, I, I moved to the New York Times. Uh, almost three years ago now, uh, to their editorial board, where I still cover New York, New York politics, and U.S. politics as well, often. Um, And it's just, it's a dream job. So I'm very, very lucky. So I'd be remiss if I didn't take advantage of this opportunity, because if you know anything about Brad and I's relationship, and it often comes out on this podcast, is he always gives me a lot of crap for my writing. So Let's let's go back to Brad's, you know, uh, undergraduate writing. Like, h- how was it? How has he progressed? <laughs> Honestly, it's funny because he was always a great writer, and he's so self-deprecating. But it's it's true. But the thing that really struck me was that he was kind of this. I remember walking into to class and thinking, like, oh, he's a nice guy. He's such a bro, and uh, he's you know still a bro in some ways but was like willing to be so vulnerable. I mean, he was like the pre Brene Brown version of like men. Like he just, I mean, Brene Brown would be so proud of you, Brad. Um, I was like, wow, this guy's really nice. And so we totally hit it off. Um, And his, I think, but in all seriousness, like the honesty that he writes with is so refreshing. Um, And just there's a sincerity and, uh, he, you know, the way that you talk about your struggles um, and your successes is just something that, you know, people go to therapy for a long time to write that way. So um, so I think it's been really exciting to follow. And I'm looking forward to reading the new book. So so I, this this podcast is is about you, Mara, though. So now we get to we get to play that back. Um, so. Yeah, you've covered politics, and that's definitely been your beat. But it's interesting because when I think about your writing, I actually don't necessarily think about your political coverage. I think more about some of the more personal stories that you've written over the past few years. And in particular, you shared in the New York Times, which is, you know, just by pure subscription numbers, the most read paper in the country, if not the world, your experience with sexual harassment and being on the receiving end of that. 
in you've written pretty extensively about your experience getting really sick with COVID. What's it like to just have your heart on your sleeve in a place where millions of people are reading? Yeah, um, it's a great question. It's both a privilege and a blessing and also can be can become, I don't want to say a nightmare, but it can be kind of a lot. I mean, I I think it's important for all of us to have boundaries and, and private worlds and private space. But especially when it comes to something like sexual assault um, or this past year, COVID, um, just knowing that the New York Times is a platform that allows you to reach and hopefully help um, millions of people. Uh, whether that's just giving them some hope or saying you're not alone, uh, you're not in this alone. I mean, that's something that, or, or sounding the alarm, frankly, about how young people can also get very sick with COVID. I mean, I don't regret being as open um, as I have been about those things. I, I think the most satisfying thing is when you get reader emails that say, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, it makes me feel less alone. Um, I've been able to share my story or thank you so much for warning me about COVID. Um, I took it seriously after I read your column. I've had people come up to, to, to me on the street in New York and say that. And so that alone, even one person makes it worth it. Um, but I also think that, you know, especially when you're a black woman who writes for the New York times in a time in which, uh, the country is so polarized politically, um, it, and frankly, also just racism is just on the rise again. It's, it's a very, uh, can be very vulnerable position. So you kind of have to take the good with the bad. Yeah. I, I, my follow-up question there is I distinctly remember, you know, and I should have never done this and God, Mara, I hope that you don't ever do it. But when you shared those stories on Twitter, I looked at some of the comments and it just broke my heart for you and that there are people out there whose like sole response to someone pouring out their heart about being assaulted or about not knowing if they're ever going to like regain their body after having COVID is just like to be mean, to be racist, to be like misogynist. And there are a lot of good comments in there. So it's a two-part question. The first is like, how do you deal with that? And are you able to compartmentalize enough? And then the second question, which is kind of the flip side of that. So both Steve and I have written pretty personal stories, but never for platforms as large as the New York Times. So, you know, longtime listeners will know I've been very open about my experience with obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. Steve was a whistleblower in a pretty enormous scandal with performance enhancing drugs in sport. And you know, something that Steve told me before I wrote my big kind of essay on OCD is that you're going to get this rush of dopamine because a million people are going to read this story. They're going to comment on it. And for a few days, you might feel like, oh, you've like, you're over this because like you've put it out there in the open. People are appreciating it. But be careful because three days later, a week later, you're still going to have OCD and the story is not going to be getting a million retweets anymore. 
Um, so it's almost like, how do you take the, the bad at first? And then also, how do you ride those waves of just being so public with stuff that's really personal? No, but, you know, as a news reporter, I'm constantly asking people, sometimes very vulnerable people, not just politicians, to share their own personal experiences with me. Um, sometimes in the, the hardest, most traumatic moments in their lives, whether, you know, Eric Garner's mother, who I've um, gotten the chance to interview many times, um, or, I mean, tons of people. And so I think from that perspective, I've seen the change, the positive change that sharing those stories can, can bring. Um, and so I feel like that is what drives me to, when appropriate, share my story. Um, but that doesn't mean it's easy. I, I mean, in the case of, you know, writing about my sexual assault, it was a huge relief for me to get that off of my chest. Uh, it was a story that I no longer have to carry around. And even though I knew that there would be haters, because there always are, and it's a broken world and people are hurting, and also cowardly because they're behind their own computer screens and not putting themselves out there, I also received so much support and um, solidarity. And so it was totally worth it. And I feel like I got something from that as well. Um, I think, you know, part of it is keeping really strong boundaries. I mean, I don't look, I don't actually see any comments on Twitter unless I follow those people. That's like a feature that I use um, pretty handily. I am not able to make my um, New York Times email public, uh, which is really hard because I like hearing from readers who are constructive. Um, but it's just, I was just getting too much hate mail, sometimes threats. Um, I try not to take it personally because ultimately it's a country that is in just a really difficult moment. And, um, you know, if you focus on those people, uh, and some of them are probably more Russian bots anyway, then, you know, it will paralyze you. And so the, the way that I've been able to kind of stay sane is to, um, maintain my private life and private world the way, you know, the way I can and really rely on my family and friends and also just focus on the work. Um, you know, I, I really, especially the past four years of Donald Trump, I mean, I feel like we at the times felt like we were on a mission. Um, and you know, we play a pivotal role in democracy. I really believe that as hokey as it sounds. Um, and so, you know, whether it's writing about New York in the pandemic or um, I was covering the presidential candidates um, a year ago this week, actually, down south, um, talking to voters in Alabama, um, it was like six states. I mean, I, I really care about that work. And when I focus on the work and people who are, um, even if they don't agree with me on everything, but they're like committed to, to being good humans and, and good citizens it, it's all worth it. Yeah. So you mentioned your coverage of the presidential, um, campaign in 2020. And I wanted to ask you about imposter syndrome. And particularly, I remember reading when the times had done interviews with, if not all, many of the major contenders and, I didn't expect to see your name. And like, there you were talking to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And 
what was that like? And like, d- did you deal with any imposter syndrome? Um, yeah, tell me what it's like to be in the room with them. Because I just know you as like Mara Gay, and we should talk about this too, but the, you know, kind of happy half marathon runner, going to get a nice drink at the University of Michigan. And to me, you're just like normal Mara Gay. But then sometimes I read, I'm like, this is the Mara Gay that's like interviewing the president. What's that like? Do you, like, how do you feel? Um, I mean, that's, that's funny. That's the way I feel about you having published several books. Um, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I get imposter syndrome. I'm human, um, for sure. Um, especially as a woman, but it, you know, when I'm interviewing someone, I'm, I'm in reporter mode and I'm not thinking about, um, uh, me really at all. I'm thinking about the task at hand. And I guess, I don't know if that's, I mean, as runners, right. It's kind of a similar, you just get in the zone and you know what the mission is. Um, and so I'm not thinking about whether I'm doing a good job. I'm thinking about, okay, we have an opportunity to help vet these candidates on behalf of Americans. Um, that's like super important and a privilege. So um, you know, for me, it's like in those situations, the candidates are really in the hot seat. Um, and, yeah. and that's just, I guess that's just, uh, the training of being a reporter. Um, it's not about you, right. It's, it's about the task at hand. Yeah. I think that's such a valuable lesson for everyone, even if you're not necessarily sitting down with very public figures. But what I'm hearing you say is that you're kind of, like in some ways transcending your ego or leaving your ego behind. And if we think about imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome is so much connected to ego. It's like, am I enough? Should I be here? Am I doing this well? And by shifting focus to the work, like you're no longer thinking about me and I, and that probably lets your shoulders drop. And as we've discussed, Steve and I've discussed prior, you tend to perform best when you're not consumed by your ego, but when you're just in the flow of what you're doing. That's exactly right. All right. So one more question, and then I'll, I'll transition to Steve. I know I've been talking quite a bit here. So you text messaged me, I think, after our podcast dropped on resilience, and then I sent you like a little ebook on resilience, and you just said that that's something that's really been on your mind as of late. Um, my assumption is that's because of your past year getting quite sick with COVID and being one of these individuals that's had just a long ongoing road of recovery. I think long haulers is kind of the the public term for that. But yeah, could you talk a little bit about why resilience is on your mind right now and, and what that means to you? Yeah, you know, it's pretty amazing because when you are a previously healthy person and you're young and you're going along your life, everything is smooth, you really don't engage that much with um, the stories necessarily of people who have been through trauma and come out on the other side of it. But, you know, God forbid, if you find yourself uh, in one of those moments, some kind of large loss or setback or illness for you or someone you love, you really, it's a very vulnerable place and you find yourself, uh, well, in my case, I found myself uh, very fascinated and encouraged by um, stories of survival 
by stories of people who've beaten the odds. And you kind of open yourself up to this world uh, that I didn't even know existed of people who have just overcome incredible um, experiences, traumas, illnesses, and it's extremely encouraging. Um, So I think, you know, I think a lot about resilience, whether it's recovering from an illness or, um, you know, rebuilding your family after a tragedy. I mean, that's, that's certainly on my mind day to day. And um, I, I think it really, even though it's been horrible and I, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, truly, um, I can already see uh, how this is going to make me a stronger person. And things that used to terrify me no longer do. Um, you become braver. You know, uh, you have more patience with yourself and others. Um, so I'm just starting to explore that because even though I have some more healing to do, I thank God I'm kind of on the other side of this and I'm closer to the end than the beginning and starting to feel better and better really all the time. Um, so it's like as that trauma and fear really that you won't really regain your life or your body starts to subside. I'm just starting to explore, um, you know, what good can I find and bring out of this experience? Um, and I, I don't really know that I have the perfect language for that yet, but when you see other people going through, uh, traumatic events in their life and they come out and you just, you look at them. I mean, I've known people grown up with some of them just, you think, wow, not just how do they survive this, but they've become this extraordinary uh, person and they're living life to the fullest. Like how, how do you make that transition? I don't have any answers yet, but um, that's on my mind. So one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, you've talked a lot in there about, stories and the impact of stories and the impact that you know stories that you've heard or told or reported on is it it's a little different in the sense that you have this responsibility you know you've told some amazing stories amazing you know some traumatic stories in your career and when interviewing and talking to these people you have this responsibility to you know um uphold and tell their story in a way that is meaningful, accurate, and impactful. I'm wondering just like how, because that's, that's a pretty big burden. Like how, how do you deal with that? How do you like take on that? Um, it is, but it's also, I mean, it's a burden. It's a privilege. Um, and also reporting. I mean, the big secret is, even though, yes, we're like part of democracy, it's also just such a fun job. Um, Journalists have a very good time. Um, and certainly you know, I'm a part of the New York City press corps, just like the White House has a press corps, we do too. Um, and, you know, you become really close uh, friends with people here and you know, just people with great senses of humor. And you, it's kind of you guys against the mayor or the governor, whoever it be at, at that moment. And uh, there's a lot of camaraderie. And it's just, it's a really good time. Um, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, 
it's it's hard work, but there are days where you kind of say to yourself, I can't believe somebody is paying me to do this job. I mean, it is a blast. Um, so, you know, I've really missed that in-person um, experience during COVID. And I'm very excited, among other things, to, to have that back. So it's, it's a lot of fun, too. Um, it's That's the big secret. Can, fun is so important to have fun with what you're doing, especially if it's hard. Uh, okay, so it is a hard job. And I'm very curious how, and I don't want to use the word routine because that seems too simple, but I guess like day to day, how do you do it all? And what I mean by all is, so before you got sick with COVID, you were running half marathons and running regularly, you know, doing this enormous job that I have to imagine is just nonstop. You somehow still respond to most of my text messages within like three minutes, even if my text messages are like, Mara, look at this thing I tweeted. Like, maybe you'll share it with all your people. Um, how do you do it all? Like, what 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 do you put in your coffee? Um, that's funny. I actually, well, uh, so I haven't run a half marathon in years, but but you but uh, yeah. okay. So then let me let me reframe. But no. you're not. You don't strike me as a workaholic. Like you have a that's, physical practice. You have friends, and I'm just curious because yeah. you think of someone that is. And now I'm going to be ageist, but since we're being ageist against ourselves, I hope I can say this, like you're young, you're at like the top of the game. The archetype that I have is like, got to be a hundred percent all in all the time. And you don't strike me as that. You know, I learned, um, maybe at Michigan, (laughs) uh, but, uh, I learned also from my father who is a workaholic, uh, God bless him. I love him dearly. Um, that he used to say like, do it, do as I say, and not as I did. (laughs) Um, and so he was, uh, gave me some wisdom early on about the importance of working hard and playing hard. Um, and so I have gotten better about that balance over the years. I think as my, I've gotten farther along in my career, um, you know, and I'm not like freelancing, desperately looking for assignments that becomes, that becomes easier. Right. Um, so that's part of it. But you just get older and wiser, right? I mean, I think you learn how to work smarter instead of harder. And so even though I still uh, work really hard, and I think there's more pressure in this job than in previous jobs, it's not, I don't have to be as scrappy 24-7, which is, uh, you know, that's not how it was the first few years of my career. So I'm still figuring this out, but it really is important. It's like, you can't be on all the time. So even though I'm pretty, I'm a big routine person. I mean, I get up in the morning. I'm an early riser, although I've found that I've needed more sleep as I've been recovering the past year, but early riser, I get up, I do some yoga at home. I go for a run, um, a short run, just like a mile right now. And usually I like run to a bakery, which is hilarious and completely counterproductive. (laughs) Um, But it's really important for me. It's like that keeps me sane is I get to have like a little sugar and some coffee in the morning um, or some tea. And I'm reading everything in New York politics kind of while I'm doing all this. Um, I've also been 
this is kind of a funny thing. I mean, Brad, you and I talked about this a little bit. Um, and I don't talk about this publicly, but it's true. I mean, I've been the past year, especially like listening to Joel Osteen a lot, which is very funny. Um, the pastor from Texas, um, cause I did not grow up religious, but I find that in the spirit of resilience, um, he's been like a great kind of spiritual cheerleader for me at this point in my life. Um, and has given me a lot of, um, I think like strength and courage, uh, in a pretty lonely time. Um, and so I'm, you know, it's like whatever works. <laughs> um, and so I'm grateful for that. And then, you know, and then it's just the day starts and that's a lot of phone calls, um, writing, TV appearances. And then once I've done what I need to do, I've gotten to be better and better about shutting my mind off in that way. And so um, if that means hanging out with a friend, um, virtually, uh, or watching kind of a, a, you know, like silly TV show, then that's, that's what it is. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I haven't mastered this, but I've learned that I'm far more productive if I have time to play and time to rest. So I, I want to, you know, harp on that Joel Osteen uh, point for a bit, because I think I find this fascinating for one, you know, Osteen's in Houston. And it's always crazy to me that his church is where the Rockets used to play. And I, watch the Rockets play there before he took over the church. So it just blows my mind. But anyways, the other part is there has to be a level of like humility as someone who, you know, maybe didn't grow up religious is what I'm hearing to go find someone in this like niche world that is, you know, um, evangelical pastor, essentially, like, how do you that that's fascinating? Like, how do you even get go through that process to say, you know what, I'm going to listen, I'm going to try this out and listen to Joel Osteen and then find it valuable. Yeah. um, It's funny. I mean, this, it didn't start with COVID. So I've been listening to him for several years at this point. Um, The first couple of times I listened, you know, five years ago or so, I was kind of horrified just because it's such a foreign cultural language. Um, Not necessarily, not necessarily religion, but evangelical, um, religion. Um, I mean, I, I was raised, you know, as a high holiday Christian and certainly in a family that's spiritual loosely. Um, but, but we did not go to church every week. Um, but I think in part because it was not forced on me, I was more open to it, um, than some of my friends who, uh, we're forced through the whole process. And, um, so that was part of it. And then it's just, you know, I think when you are, yeah, there is a humility. I mean, when, when you get knocked down, when life knocks you down, whether it's a job loss, a breakup, um, you know, a sickness, you really realize that it really is like whatever helps you. And I think in this case, um, as, a, as an optimist, which I am, and somebody who was already kind of spiritually open, I've really found his messages of hope and resilience um, 
to be quite helpful and relevant and inspiring. And it's funny because, I mean, I have to put a lot of cultural baggage aside to get to that because I, I have a lot of discomfort still with like churches as organizations and the role that they sometimes play in society. Um, but I will say too, I think in the past decade or even 15 years since we've been at college too, exploring what it means to be a Black American, I actually find it somewhat more accessible because the history of the Black church in the United States is far more progressive and has played an enormous, an enormously positive role in society. Um, not every time, but largely. And so um, I think as I've gotten more in tune with that, I've it, it's just kind of opened the door. And so I, at this point, I certainly, I would consider myself to be a pretty religious person, um, but not dogmatic at all. I mean, I don't even know if I'd ever even attend a service. We'll see. But um, it's it's brought, it's not just comfort. It's brought like energy and hope. Um, into my life and actually ironically has made me more evangelical um, about my own progressive <laughs> beliefs. Um, you know, when you talk about like the beloved community, um, which is this place where we all get to be humans together. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm invested. Uh, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> what, have you always, and, and maybe when we were back in college, like when we were closest in proximity and really seeing each other often, it, 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 we were just young, but have you always kind of been able to hold competing ideas at the same time? Or is that a skill that you've gleaned? Because, you know, to someone that doesn't know you, you kind of can come off as like an enigma, like you know, the, the church and the, the black church <laughs> and the community. And then you find like the most like white, like motivational speaking pastor there is. Um, I've noticed in the way publicly that you've written about race is it, it, at least how I interpret it in like, we're two white guys talking to you. So you tell us race is a big thing, but it's not the only thing. And like holding those two things at the same time, and just now you said like I'm I like I am an extremely meticulous progressive intellectual person and I'm religious. So it's a lot of like holding these competing ideas at the same time and not to say that they're balanced 50-50, but just creating space. I think is really admirable because I think that so many of our problems right now are people going 100% in one lane. And now there's a time and a place to go 100% in one lane, but it's not all the time. So I'm kind of curious how you think about that. And maybe I'm completely just projecting onto you and that's not how you feel at all. No, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, like part of it might be, you know, I grew up with a white mother, a black father in a country that, you know, has certainly not figured race out or racism out. Um, so I, I'm definitely used to not just code switching, but I, I think I'm, you know, you learn to be pretty fluent um, culturally. And so there are where, where some people may see uh, very rigid distinctions. Um, you know, for me, I, I think I'm kind of able to kind of take what I want or need from each part 
um, each part of, you know, whether it's my upbringing or like culturally, each part of society. So that might be kind of a skill that, that is learned in that way. Um, but I also just think that people become so dogmatic, whether that's religiously or politically. And I don't say that to say that we should just all find compromise with people, for for example, who were putting kids in cages, right? Like there's a time to be radically, um, I, I actually, yeah, I reject the idea that that radicalism is always bad. You can be radically against slavery. You can be radically in favor of women's rights. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, but dogma is a different story. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I just, I, I, I hope that, let me put it this way. I think the thing that is missing right now from a lot of these conversations, and especially the conversation about racism, is like, for me, the point of talking about racism, of unpacking it, is not to live there in the swamp of all of this horrible, you know, um, trauma that we have inherited as a country, black, white, and other. The point is to confront it, address it, reckon with it, so that we can move on and be a better society of healthier, happier humans together. And I think similarly, you know, that's an approach that is, I mean, that, that kind of guides the rest of my life. It's like, why throw the baby out with the bathwater? I mean, there are ideas from every part of society that work. There are things we can learn from every group of people. Um, and we have a lot of things to fix. So why be, why be dogmatic about it? So this is fascinating because you work and your background, your education, political science is in a field that tends to cause everyone to narrow. But like you've just, you know, shown this incredible ability to like broaden out and gain perspective. Well, again, like having to zoom in and go in this narrow field um, for your work on a day to day basis. How have you been able to like keep that perspective and keep that ability to, you know, broaden things out? You know, I think um, working in New York City politics has been not just so much fun, but a really great um, education in what you're talking about. Because while the rest of the country has been understandably focused on Democrat versus Republican, conservative, liberal, you know, when you talk about like city government and making a city as large as New York work, you're really talking about things that are not partisan. You're talking about who has the best ideas to get, you know, to solve New York's infamous trash problem. How do you get rats off of New York City streets? How do you make the subway run on time? Um, you know, what does good government look like? And so that has kind of informed the way I think about um, a lot of things. And I think right now we have a mayor's race coming up in New York and people are exhausted. So I mean, I, I understand we're not exactly thrilled um, to, to get excited for this mayor's race. It's going to be really important given where the city is at. And it's like, I find myself thinking not, oh, who has the most progressive ideas or who has, um, you know, the, the most Democratic or Republican ideas. What I'm curious about is who's going to be a good public servant 
who understands how to make government work for 8.5 plus million people? Who has, you know, management skills and some humility to go with them? Like those are the kinds of things that you start to think about. Um, so I think once we're able to uh, kind of drill down and talk to each other like human beings, those are the things that really can change people's lives. And, and so that, that's exciting. Um, and I, I, I've seen, you know, I've seen Republicans be able to uh, be great public servants, Democrats, um, not, you know, who, so it's, it's really, that's about people. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's exciting. We'll see what happens. Got a so whole lot of I want to shift gears a little bit and you're definitely practicing what you preach because you're talking about the work, not yourself. But I think that listeners um, are going to be curious a little bit more about your own practices. So I want to say it was maybe a year and a half ago we spoke and well, hold on. You'll tell me when, when were you first named to the editorial board? In April of 2018. Okay. So then it was probably two years ago. It was maybe like six or eight months after you had been named and we were talking and I remember distinctly you told me, Brad, it's like playing in high school and then being drafted for the NFL. What... What yeah. was that like? And what did you change or how did your mindset shift? And for those that aren't in the writing world, we have probably a fair amount of listeners that are into sports. I think that's like a pretty apt analogy. You know, maybe you were playing at like a smaller college. So you were doing like local reporting for the Wall Street Journal, still a big paper, and then coming over the times, but like the editorial board, like you are managing, you are editing, you are writing. Um, so what was that jump like? And, and walk us through how you made it. Um, it was, yeah, I mean, first of all, I grew up reading the times. It's my hometown newspaper. Um, my dad and I sit there on Sunday mornings. He'd bring it, bring the Sunday times home for me. And it was a ritual we had in my family. It was like a Bible to us. Um, and when I worked at the wall street journal, my liberal friends I grew up with would say, Oh, that's really nice. But, um, let us know when you work for the New York times. <laughs> um, so it, this was a dream job. Um, and also like a return to my roots because as I was discussing, I started my career at the editorial board of, uh, the Michigan daily. Um, I was super freaked out, uh, when I got the job offer at the times, I was excited, but also just, I mean, talk about imposter syndrome thinking to myself, like, you know, I've just spent the past 10 years as a news reporter and I'm telling my friends, I'm, I'm telling them like, you know, what if I don't have any opinions? And they just started laughing because they thought that was hilarious. Um, but I, you know, I jumped right in and I lucked out because my very first day on the job, um, a longtime source of mine had, uh, was leading, a uh, um, one of the city agencies and called me up and said, like, you know, I'm leaving. I promised you I would give, I would tell you first and give you this scoop. And so I was actually like able to scoop, um, you know, to deliver a scoop on my first day, which was very exciting because it took a lot of the pressure off and really just threw me right into Yeah, you're going fire. back into the work. Like this, yeah. is, this is such an apparent theme that like whenever there like could be, angst or things that are connected to ego and worry, 
it's just like you're a machine. You're like, all right, like let me find some work to do because when I do the work, I can like release yeah. from the focus on self and put it in the work and then and totally. then thrive. That's really neat. Totally. So, but it was it was like going from living in black and white to technicolor. Um, and you know, the times is just so much bigger than every other newspaper. So I realized very quickly how much power and influence you can wield and just the, the responsibility and the weight of making sure that you're using that wisely. I mean, the hardest thing, right. Is managing your time because, uh, you know, people say like when you work at other smaller papers, you make 20 calls and you get one back. But when you work at the New York times, you make one phone call and you get 20 back. Um, you know, especially in New York politics, which is democratic, where people really want your endorsement um, or they want to be featured in the New York Times. Um, so managing that is important because your time will not be yours if you, uh, if, if you don't stop other people from taking it, which is to say, like, you know, I learned in my first year, every time I'm writing an editorial that I was talked into, by a spokesperson or whomever, it could be a perfectly good editorial. Um, could be anything. That's fine, but that's that's time and space in the paper that you're not using to do something that might be more important or that you're very passionate about. So it's just a management issue. Yeah, I'm hearing these commonalities, like boundaries, like self-awareness, perspective, like it's just kind of amazing. I, I have to ask, you know, you mentioned in there that it, it was your dream job. And a lot of times when you have this like dream job, what comes with it is these expectations. And I'm wondering how you managed like those expectations of what you thought the times was. And then the reality when you get into the work of of what it actually does. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a job. Nothing is perfect. There are hard days to be sure, but, um, I've just been really lucky because I think it's a good fit for me. This job has been a good fit. And so that's when it really starts to come together. It's not just a dream job kind of in this theoretical sense. I mean, I think I've, you know, I found out that I'm pretty good at it and that I really enjoy it. And that people in New York seem to really respond to my work. And that gives me great pleasure and satisfaction because I love this city. And so, um, you know, that's exciting. Like, I would say the 2018 elections that we had, state Senate elections, we made several endorsements. Um, and you never know what it is that puts a candidate over the edge. So it's not like the Times can claim credit um, for all of these things by any means. But... Um, you know, I, I'm very proud that we help support candidates that um, have, you know, strengthened rent protections after many years, that have done criminal justice reform, um, that, you know, we've supported candidates like AOC, um, you know, and new, new voices, new faces, and um, pushed for changes in the city and state that I think um, are going to make live life better for people. I'm proud of that. So it is about doing the work. Um, but also, um, I found that, I mean, the hardest part has been not just managing time, but really creating those boundaries 
finding out where they should be because I never, I didn't go into journalism. Um, I don't think, I mean, I didn't go into journalism expecting to be on television. I didn't go into journalism because I wanted to be famous or well-known. I'm not famous, but I'm kind of known now. So, you know, that experience has been kind of jarring. Um, and you sometimes feel like, you know, gosh, like your life is not your own. Um, it's, it's pretty weird. So kind of navigating that, uh, especially in the past year, when I've been on TV a lot um, on MSNBC for the presidential race has been um, more challenging. And so that's when you really have to like dig deep and remember why you are doing the work that you are. Yeah. So the a, a related question to that is you clearly have a lot of humility and I'm sure there are times when you just feel like a little bit of grandiosity and maybe not, but I certainly do. And like, that's what Steve is for to be like, Brad, like this is not going to work out. Well, you know, tighten your hat, your head's not that big or like, you're going to feel great for a week, but like, you're going to realize that, you know, your shit still stinks and you're going to feel pretty down. What kind of, you know, you talk a little bit about like some of the physical boundaries or boundaries between work and private life, what kind of mental boundaries do you have in place to like ride those highs and enjoy them, but not completely become like overwhelmed or consumed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. You have any tips? (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) Um, No, I, I mean, uh, well, I mean, I'm not famous, so it's not like, I'm not going to sit here and say, Oh, I have to work really hard to stay grounded. Um, you know, one thing that is always humbling. Well, hold is on. I'm going to push back because fame what? is like, I'm going to push back because like fame is relative. So like from where I sit, you know, you can write a lot. You have a ton of autonomy to write what you want in the most read newspaper. You've got a ton of people that follow you on social media who take your opinions very seriously. So like there's the kind of famous where, you know, you're LeBron James or Shalane Flanagan, where people like recognize you on the street. But like in our world, I don't want that. I want to be famous like you. I want people to like recognize my ideas. So, you know, I would I would push back and say like I and I'm not like saying this to say, oh, like you're super famous, but you are your 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 intellect. What you are known for is highly relevant to lots of people. And you're a human being and that comes with like intense highs that you can't let get to you that much, but you also want to enjoy because otherwise it's just hard. So I'm really curious, like how you, how you manage all that. Um, so I think part of the answer is I probably don't manage it that well. I mean, I think I do go into this zone of just, as Steve said, just focusing on the work because that's where my comfort level is. Um, in terms of humility, there's nothing more humbling than like this morning when I came to city hall and I sat down and opened Microsoft word and I'm staring at a blank page. So there's nothing more humbling as, as all writers will know, um, than staring at that blank page because it's like the first time you've ever written something if it's been a while. So there's that. Um, I mean, you know, I I will say a year ago, right before COVID, when I was traveling in the South, um, I was 
in Selma, actually, for the annual march across the bridge. It's really, it's like a civil rights um, event that a lot of people don't know about. I had never heard of. It was very big last year because, um, you know, uh, all the presidential candidates, the Democrats were, were down there. Um, and John Lewis says last year, marching across the Selma, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, and this is to commemorate, of course, Bloody Sunday, 1965, um, when he and other civil rights leaders were beaten horribly um, uh, for, you know, this civil rights march. So I was down there and I was in the zone working hard, just trying to talk to some voters. Um, it was right before Joe Biden kind of swept the nomination. And, you know, I was very interested in hearing from black voters about who they were interested in. And the answer was, as we now know, Joe Biden. Um, but when I was walking around Selma, Alabama, uh, I was in the crowd and I would hear people, I mean, several people, many people knew who I was, um, Black Americans, many of them older women. Uh, and they would say to me, oh, we love you on TV. We're so proud of you. Will you come take a picture with my daughter? Um, and so that is kind of a moment that I enjoyed, but also a moment where you know, there's humility in, I think it's very easy to be self-deprecating and cynical um, about a lot of things right now. But, you know, some people, a lot of print journalists um, kind of roll their eyes at TV or at punditry or any of that. Um, but that was a moment where I felt really good. And I felt like, you know, okay, I must be doing something right. Um, and even if I'm not, this is fuel for the fight. So that was, that was really like one of my proudest moments and also a moment of like, okay, you know, uh, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. I know Steve's going to want to talk about like identity and perspective because he loves to talk about that. So I'll let him do that. But, um, I, I want to just like comment on, you know, in your answer just there, I think that again, like this, this aptitude of non-dual thinking or holding competing ideas at once to me is coming out because what I'm hearing you say is that like people tend to fall into these two extremes, which is like total self-deprecation and almost as a defense mechanism. And then like, you know, maybe like ego at the utmost, it becomes narcissism. And what I'm hearing you say is like, it's almost like a humble confidence. So like there is humility, but like you're also owning who you are and what you've done. And um, yeah, I'll turn it over to Steve on perspective. But Steve, just in case you weren't going to say it, like, again, I think maybe what I'm also hearing helps with that is you couch this big moment in like all of this history in lineage with like the civil rights movement and you being like a black woman in America. So you didn't say like, I'm at this huge event and there are all these people and they want a piece of me. You're like, this is just like one more step in this huge lineage and tradition that now I'm a part of. So again, like you're zooming out and making it less about you, which I think is really neat. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, I was, I mean, Brad, you said exactly what I was going to to get on there. Um, 
because I think it's fascinating. I mean, just listening to you, you have this ability to like zoom out, understand the perspective, but also I think the word I'd use is like this security and understanding like who you are and where you are in this moment at this time. So, you know, I'm just curious, you know, maybe drilling down into, I'm not going to ask you how that's developed because that's probably a long conversation, but drilling down into like some practical um, maybe things like, what are your reading habits like, or what, like, what, what do you do that like gives you about this ability to connect this history to what you're going through and have this kind of perspective? You know, um, I actually have to credit the university of Michigan because we have a pretty extraordinary political science and history department. And there are still some classes that I took in college. I'm still in touch with some of these professors um, I took Southern Politics of the United States, for example. And some of the, some of the books I've read, Eric Foner's Reconstruction. I mean, the Civil War period in U.S. history is so relevant to what's going on today. Um, even if you look at the electoral maps. Um, I mean, if you look at an electoral map of 2020 and you juxtapose that with a map of cotton-producing slave states... <laughs> Um, you'd see some commonalities. So I think I was always a student of history and I'm not an expert, but I just am pretty voracious about that um, kind of reading. I'm just excited and interested in it just by nature. That has given me enormous perspective to, I think, hopefully do a better job reporting in this time rather than just covering horse race politics. Um, And then my reading habits now are just... I mean, it's terrible. Like I'm just, I read the times, the journal, the post, and then I'm on, and then the tabloids. And then I'm, you know, finding new things on Twitter all the time, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, what have you. Um, But I I do think like continuing to read books on American history and history elsewhere um, has brought context to my reporting. I hope that, hopefully I think stands out. I mean, that's, I really hope so. Um, I, I think if we don't understand our history, we're just dead in the water. This is why Mara is recording this from like a beautiful press room in New York city. And I'm like buried in a closet because she was paying attention in undergraduate school and I was smoking weed and reading Robert Persig, <laughs> which oh, is probably on. why I'm writing about like Zen and success and performance and, uh, <laughs> Mara's uh, the, the sharper intellectual razor here. Um, I don't know, though. Seems like a better choice given where things have gone. <laughs> so that it's funny you say that. So I know we're 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 wrapping up our time together, but um, how like mental health? Not in a uh, like you know I should I was going to say like, not necessarily connected to what you've gone through with being so sick with COVID, but of course that's a part of it. But if you could compartmentalize, you basically just said like you kind of live in the muck. Like you're on Twitter, you're reading the tabloids. And earlier you said like, you think the whole point of living in the muck is so that we can get out of the muck. But in order to get out of the muck, we kind of like have to live in the muck to understand it. Um, There's a lot of despair around this stuff. I think a week ago I texted you when the Cuomo allegations came out and I'm just like, fuck it, Mara. Like, do these people all suck? How do you do it? 
And I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm like, Cuomo's communicating really well about COVID. The nursing home thing sucks, but like no one can be perfect. And then the allegations of like just the most obscene stuff came out. It's not worth talking about here. If you want to read it, read it. And I texted Mara and I'm like, this sucks. And you were pretty optimistic. You're like, hey, there's a lot of good people. So how do you kind of live in the muck without getting sad all the time? Yeah. Well, to be clear, what I said was there are a lot of good public servants. Um, Excuse me. That's even more important. Yeah. There are a lot of good people. And and I'm like, really? And I think I like asked you for math. Like, I don't believe you. Like how many? Um, We don't have to get into the numbers, Um, but yeah. How do you not become despairing? uh, You know, you have to stay on guard for that kind of weariness. I think cynicism is, (laughs) I think cynicism is pretty overrated and it's pretty dangerous and a lot of reporters get very cynical and it's not a great place to be because you give up your power to make change when that happens. And it's also just disrespectful um, to those who are out there every day um, making change in a good way. Um, So part of that is just endurance and resilience. Um, Part of that is celebrating the wins when they come. Um, and, you know, I've talked a little bit about what that's looked like in New York. Um, but you know, I, I think you have to be on guard for that. Uh, in, in my case, how do I stay optimistic? I mean, you're talking to a liberal city kid who, you know, uh, works at the New York times and listens to Joel Osteen every day. Right. Um, I, I also stay sane running um, and, uh, you know, pre-COVID, like spending time with um, my, my little nephew and, and doing all kinds of um, like healthy activities, baking, whatever, whatever you need to do. But I just think getting into cynicism is, is um, you know, if it reaches a point at which it's like you may as well just stop doing journalism. Um, if you don't believe that change is possible then what are, what are you doing here? Um, and I think, unfortunately, there are some people who feed into that. Um, and it masquerades in the industry socially as though it's like a sense of sophistication. Like in order to be sophisticated, you need to be cynical. And I think uh, that's really ridiculous. I also just, I think as a Black American, um, you know, and like the daughter of someone who um, is a very successful executive. But, you know, my dad literally grew up drinking out of segregated water fountains. Um, And, you know, now I work at the New York Times. And it's just to say that, you know, to be cynical dismisses what that change means and what that has meant to my life, to my father's life. So I think, I do think for, it helps to be black in that way because you just have a larger sense of history. doesn't mean that you don't get discouraged or exhausted. You do. There's a weariness to it, but you have to really guard against that. Um, So I always kind of roll my eyes uh, when some of my colleagues, and not just at the Times and just in journalism, just are super cynical about things. It's like, you got to take a longer view. Um, and if you aren't ready to do that, then like let somebody else have at it. 
That is such, I think, a powerful message on which to end. I mean, what I'm hearing from you is just, it's like hope, basically. It's like having this sense of hope, um, even while you're going through some of these difficult times or you're in the muck. And I think like crafting that ability or creating that ability is um, something that we should all aspire to. Um, I just want to thank you, Mara, for this conversation. I've got tons of notes here on things that I now want to explore and look at. And you're going to push me to uh, do some more reading and digging into the, the world of American history which I uh, love in, to explore, but I've, uh, you know, fallen out of, um, out of way for, for a while. So I just want to thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad that uh, Brad got you to come on to our small little podcast because it's been so valuable. Uh, well, thank you guys so much. This has been a real treat to be among friends and um, I know we'll continue the conversation. So I love what you guys do and keep it up. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.